After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Again, uh, Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thank you, Jen. Oh, I've got the lyrics to that song up here now. That's good. From Elizabeth, Hallett Cove, Paraka. Okay. That was awesome. All right. Well, lovely to be with you this morning. Thanks uh, so much, Scott. I'm really looking forward to this chance to talk about this question. Where are we up to with global mission? Let's begin with prayer. Lord, we just ask that as we think about that passage and think about the world and what you've been doing, uh, we ask that you would please fill our hearts with a sense of purpose, that our sense of purpose might be yours, that we might align our purpose to yours, and that you would please really encourage us and grip us with the grace that is apparent in your world mission. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're, we're asking that question, where are we up to? With global mission, I don't know if it's something that you think about all the time. Probably not. I think that's one of the reasons I'm asking the question. Oh, world mission. Yeah, like that's a massive thing, isn't it? And uh, how do we actually do anything there anyway? Um, which bit of the world? I mean, where do we start? It's huge. Uh, the vision statement of our organization, CMS, is a world that knows Jesus. Okay, so it's even harder now. That's like... Quite bold, wouldn't you think? A world that knows Jesus. How would we ever see that? The reality is, if you are looking for a purpose in your life, wow, this is a good one. And I think we are looking for something to get ourselves excited about. Well, this is the thing that God is excited about. But what would it take, do you reckon, for, for a world to know Jesus? How would you evangelize the whole world? Okay, let's get the whiteboard up, try a few ideas. It's going to be hard, isn't it? Some people will say it's impossible. Others will say, now, that's actually offensive. Don't go and Christianize the world. I didn't say Christianize, by the way, but we'll come back to that. What about 
Jesus. What did Jesus say about world evangelization? In Matthew 24, he says this, this gospel, that is this news of the kingdom, will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. And so it's a prophecy. Jesus is saying the whole world will be evangelized and only then will I return. First world evangelization, then the end of the world. If we're looking for that crystal ball, what does it look like in the future? Jesus is actually giving us a bit of a picture here. And this is God's mission. It's the thing that he is doing and he's telling us about it. But the interesting thing is it involves us. He's not just doing it apart from us. He's doing it using us if we will participate. So that's the question really, isn't it? Where are we up to in world, in world mission? Really the question is, do we want this? Do you actually want to see Jesus proclaimed in the whole world? And for some of you, you'll be still wondering, well, I don't even know who this Jesus is for me. So, you know, there's probably a few questions to be working through. The title of this talk is Where Are We Up To With World Mission? And we kind of need to, if we're going to answer that question, we need to ask where have we come from and where are we going? And we're going to ask that question in three ways. Where are we up to in the Bible story? Where are we up to in world history? And where are we up to as a church? What's it look like for us at Trinity Church Paraka to be seeking a world that knows Jesus? So firstly, where are we up to in the Bible's story you know the picture in acts 2 you know what happens in acts 2 it's a really significant moment we call it pentecost it's 50 days after jesus resurrection it's 10 days after jesus ascension and pentecost was this harvest festival and it was at the time of this harvest festival where god sent his spirit on his people and there's quite an extraordinary set of events around that. You can look at that in Acts 2. But at this spirit of Pentecost, God is launching a new kind of harvest. It's not a harvest of grain. It's a harvest of people. And what you have in Acts 2 is an incredible moment of handover. It's handover from God the Son, who's been present in our world, incarnate, as a person who started a new age, the new age, through his death and resurrection. You got this handover from God the Son to God the Spirit. As the Son uh, leaves us physically, and God the Spirit takes the message about God the Son, and he energizes and equips the church, that's us, to bear witness to that message about God the Son across the whole world. So it's a very, very significant moment at Pentecost. And what happens at Pentecost is that we actually step into the Bible. You and I become part of the narrative because we are that church to whom has been given God's Spirit. And you'll see yourself in that picture in just a moment. So the, the message from the, the Acts launch, it launches explosively from 120 people or disciples of Jesus before Pentecost to over 5,000, two chapters later in chapter 4. 
But now if we wind forward to the very end of the Bible's picture, to the book of Revelation, where's it all heading? And we heard the reading from Revelation 7. The Apostle John had been given this vision and it's reported to us. I looked there before me. So let's just close our eyes for a moment and just imagine this vision of what John's seeing. I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Just imagine how far off into the distance this multitude goes. From every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they're wearing white robes, every single person, and they're holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You can open your eyes. That is a picture of the future. And what's happened? World evangelization has happened. Tick. Um, and that is the gospel has been preached to the whole world as predicted by Jesus and now the end has come and we have gathered there people from every nation, tribe and language. Um, and you're there, right? Are you there in the crowd? Can you see yourself? Can anyone see themselves in the crowd? You are there, aren't you? Yes, good, good. This is important. <laughs> you are part of this gathering, but as you look around, you see diversity everywhere. Not diversity in people's dress. They're all wearing exactly the same thing in this vision. But diversity in skin color and in cultural background. You hear people using different languages amongst you. And, you know, laughing at different jokes because there's always a different emphasis in different cultures. But you're in there with them, aren't you? And you've got people from Afghanistan and from North Korea and people from Eritrea and from Iran. And they're all around you. And together we're all rejoicing at Jesus' glory and grace. Okay, so that's, that's the, you've got the bookends. You've got the Acts picture and you've got the... Um, Revelation picture. How did it go from the Acts picture to the Revelation picture? Two things we know must have happened. The first thing we know is that a multitude of people, an uncountable group of people, have heard the gospel. Uh, because remember the white robes? Why are they all wearing white robes? These are robes that have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, since when do you wash clothes in blood? And they come out white. This is not cleaning tips. We don't wash clothes in blood anyway, and that's not how you make them white. So it's a metaphor, isn't it? It's a metaphor for what happens when people are cleansed by Jesus' blood. The whole idea of us being cleansed by someone else dying, is that the sort of idea we would come up with? No, it's not. This is not the world's idea. It's not the sort of thing that you and I can construct. It is a message. It's something you have to receive because it's so crazy we wouldn't have made it up. But without this message, we have no hope. So what we see in this passage is we know the message has been, has been proclaimed because the people have been cleansed. And the way they've been cleansed is through the cross. And that's not the sort of message anyone makes up. So we know that the message has been preached. The second thing we know that's happened, not only has the message been preached, but we know that the message has gone across cultures. 
as we know, Christianity is not white, it's not Western, it is multicultural and it is multicontinental. And it's much more multicultural than any church that you or I have ever visited. But how did the church get multicultural here in Revelation 7? Because there's nothing accidental about crossing cultures. Those of you who've crossed cultures to Australia will know that it's not easy coming and fitting into a culture here. I mean, we we look at our multicultural um, context here in Australia and we say, aren't we great? We've got a very multicultural uh, country, and it's true, 30% of Australians are born overseas. And so it is very multicultural in some ways. And yet there is this thing that happens in a place like Australia where we do kind of assimilate a bit, you know, and we, we kind of want everybody to sort of come back to some sort of middle ground that we can all connect with easily because the reality is crossing cultures is hard you don't just accidentally cross cultures if it was easy then eventually around the world all the cultures would eventually just sort of mush together and we get some kind of middle middle of the road kind of everybody's the same kind of culture but that's not the way it works is it crossing cultures is hard and so therefore If we see around the throne all these people cleansed by the blood of Christ, we know they've heard the gospel. And if we see that they're from all sorts of different cultures and backgrounds, we know that the gospel has crossed cultures. And it's crossed cultures multiple times. And that's been done intentionally. And so what we see in this multicultural gathering, it tells us that throughout the history of the church, missionaries must have been sent. People who've gone across cultures to bring the gospel. It can even go as far as to say you cannot get from Acts 2 to Revelation 7 without missionaries having been sent. Missionaries going across cultures is absolutely central to the fulfillment of God's purposes as we see them fulfilled in Revelation 7. How else would you get there? How else would this picture emerge? Not saying that there aren't also great opportunities to do mission locally without crossing cultures. And we need to be doing that too. But we can't do that at the cost of thinking about crossing cultures. So where are we up to in the Bible's picture? We're in the middle somewhere. Uh, We've sent some missionaries, but there are still many, many, many unrepresented nations, tribes and people groups and language groups they say there are 7,000 um, un, unreached what are they, yeah, unreached people groups of the 17,000 around the world. If you prayed for a different unreached people group every single day of your life, how long would it take you to get through 7,000 of them? That's 20 years just for one prayer for each of those, um, those unreached people groups. There's a lot of work to be done. So point two, where are we up to in world history? A quick survey of 2,000 years, shouldn't take long, should it? Um, Because numbers do tell a powerful story. So in Acts chapter 1, there are 120 believers. By chapter 4, there's 5,000. By the end of the first century, there may have been as many as 1.4 million Christians, which represents just under 1% of the world's population. That's not bad for 60 years, is it? Just under 1%. Now check out where it goes next. Ta-da! Look at that. Um, 
By the year 200, 4.7% of the world's population were Christian. By 300, it's 7.5%. By 400, 13.4%. By 500, one in five people on earth were Christian. Now, were they all mature disciples? I doubt it. In our own country, when someone puts Christian on the census, it doesn't mean they necessarily have saving faith. What it means is that the gospel has been extensively preached in Australia. And remember that Jesus didn't say that the whole world would be Christianized. He said that the message about Jesus would go to the whole world. So what happens next in graph two? Well, this is a longer time period here. Uh, There's significant world population growth and the percentage of Christianity goes down relatively. There's the birth and spread of Islam through that period. There's a weird spike in the 13th century connected with the Mongol Empire, and we won't go into details because it's complex. Um, Then there is a gradual increase post-Reformation until, graph three, the incredible 19th century. What do you think happens in the 19th century? What, What do you remember from history? You ready to see? Anticipation? I mean, does it go down? Does it go up? Whoa! You can't see the scale, but that last one, that's the 19th century. Isn't that incredible? Um, Something massive has gone on there, a massive explosion in mission activity through the 1800s and uh, multiple spiritual awakenings all around the world. And by 1900, Christianity represented a third of the world's population. That's incredible, isn't it? Uh, So what do you think was going to come next? I read an article um, by a guy called Douglas A. Sweeney called, recently, um, called, When Did Evangelicals Stop Caring About Global Missions? Ooh, that's a confronting title, isn't it? But what happens is Sweeney points to the world being poised for an incredible 20th century. It was going to be the Christian century, the golden age of world Christianity. But from your knowledge of history, what happened in the 20th century? Well, two world wars, dozens of genocides, massive population growth, an increase of Islam in Asia and Africa, 45 million Christian martyrs, like that's massively more than any other century, along with, as we well know, the devastating decline in Christian commitment in Europe followed by the rest of the West. In the Northern Hemisphere, between 1900 and 2000, Christianity went from representing 80% of the population to about 40%. And this is kind of the world we live in, isn't it? We kind of think, oh, yeah, maybe it's all over. And it's been a hard time, hasn't it, the 20th century? But what happened to overall percentages? Do you know anything about where the percentages are today? Well, this is a little bit... This is a couple of decades old, but this is the whole picture there. You can see the 20th century is that last little bit. It's kind of held steady, hasn't it? Still a third of the world's population, roughly. And um, uh, it's still the world's largest religion. It's still growing. It's not not growing as fast as Islam. But what has happened? We're we're in this post-Christian century, aren't, aren't we? We... We worry, why haven't the numbers dropped further? If you went down the street and asked 
you know, what do you think of Jesus and the church? And the kind of the responses you would get would make you think it's all over. We might as well pack up, right? No, <laughs> that's not the answer. Um, what happened in the 20th century is a massive growth of the church in many of the poorest parts of the world. And in some ways, that massive growth has offset this massive exodus from nominal Christian faith in the West. Right across areas in Asia, Africa, and South America, the place we call the Global South, our Christian faith has exploded. So where are we up to in world history then? Well, what do we think the 21st century should look like? I mean, really, we don't want to get too hung up on graphs because this, this isn't really the whole picture, is it? But what, what does the graph tell us? The graph tells us that God has done extraordinary things over the last 20 centuries. It tells us that in the last century, there has been extraordinary um, changeover in the world's picture of where Christianity is at. makes us wonder, what's our role now in the West, uh, given that we have this incredible heritage of theological resources in English, an incredible heritage of leadership expertise in English? So this is one of the things that we're actually thinking through. What do we do? Where do we send missionaries? What can we, what can we do at this period? Surely the 21st century is a time to engage in cross-cultural discipleship and evangelism because we in the West are seeing what God is doing in other parts of the world and we think, well, Lord, use us. How can we be used? How can we share our resources? Of course, we don't want to take our eyes off our own backyard, do we? We need to be bold and confident. But don't be discouraged about your own backyard. Don't think that, you know, God, is, maybe it's not all real or whatever. It's real, all right. It's just that we've, the West is turning away. So let's keep, let's keep turning, telling, speaking the truth about Christ. But notice what God is doing in other parts of the world. So the harvest is ripe. And let's pray for God to send out workers into the harvest field. Which brings me to the final concluding question. Thank you. Uh, where are we up to at Trinity Church Paraka in terms of mission? I'm really encouraged that you guys pray for the Purdies, and I do encourage you to keep on developing the relationship with Malcolm and Ainsley we'll, um, and their kids. We'll talk about them in a second. Um, I'd like to do just a quick pulse check. It's an opportunity for us as, to think as a church, but also for you to think as an individual. Um, what does it look like for you personally to be engaged in this process of global mission? Are you connected to any missionaries, anybody working cross-culturally overseas? Can you see the Southeast Asian, the African, the South American Christians there with you in Revelation 7, in that end of, um, in that great gathering? Well, CMS talks about pray, care, Give, go. These are four very simple calls to action for the church in relation to mission. And we do these together. Pray, care, give, and go. I just want to go through each of those briefly. Firstly, pray. Do you pray for missionaries? Uh, I assume we pray for them up here on the platform. Uh, I know Kirsty's going to lead us in prayer for the Purdy's um, in due course. Uh, what about in your private devotions? Do you pray for missionaries in 
your private devotions? Do you, do you pray, let your kingdom come? Because Jesus tells us to pray that. Uh, so praying for his kingdom to come in different parts of the world is a really important thing for Christians to do. Um, pray for the countries that they're serving in. So in the case of the Purdies, pray for Chile. But not only Chile, because these missionaries are actually training people in Chile uh, in theology and in being leaders of the church. But many of them are from other South, Africa, South American countries. And so you can pray for those other countries as well and pray that there would be a continual growth in the number of people coming through this college uh, to be trained well in the Bible, to go and have a, <clears throat> to have a lifetime of godly Bible-based ministry throughout South America. I mean, those are great things to pray for. Um, the Purdies have very significant um, prayer needs, and they have ever since they uh, departed, or even before they departed here, they still don't have visas. You know that this visa fiasco? Um, I think it's like 18 months ago, maybe more, maybe 19 months ago that we started praying for long-term visas for these guys, which was six months before they even arrived in Chile. And then they spent six months in, on short-term visas, and then they've gone back. They've had to go and spend six months in Argentina uh, whilst they wait for their long-term visas. And then now they've been told that actually they can go back into Chile and wait for their long-term visas while they're on short-term visas, which they weren't previously able to do. So they can do that for three months. You know, Lord, please bring the visas. Um, that would be really good. But it's not just about praying for these practical things, is it? Because anyone in ministry knows that you can lose heart very easily. So we must pray that they don't lose heart. They're now back in Santiago. They're feeling a lot better because they're back in their apartment and they can actually send their kids back to the schools that they're meant to be in, to the friendships they're meant to be developing and so on. That's really good. But pray that they don't lose heart. The other thing you can pray for the Purdies is Malcolm's about to start teaching in Spanish um, and he doesn't feel ready for that yet. So he said the other day that maybe he, you know, it's a big thing to feel ready to teach theology in any language. So, you know, it's a big challenge in two different areas. So please do pray for those. You do pray for the kingdom, don't you? It's really important. Secondly, care. It's easily easy to think that this is nice but not essential. Um, you know, as long as we do the important stuff like the prayer and the giving. Um, but actually, the whole reason we do mission is because God loves us. The whole reason mission exists is because God loves the world so much that he gave his only son, as we saw earlier. And so caring for missionaries is really, it's about loving missionaries uh, because mission is very hard. And if you can show the Purdies or whoever you're partnering with that as a church, you really do care about them. You do love them. You want the best for them. That's going to make life so much more achievable, so much more likely that they'll be able to stay long term if they feel that support from the um, from the home base. How do you care for them? Well, a lot of it is about um, is about communications. It's about receiving their prayer updates, and you can just um, you can get their cards there on the table at the back and use the QR code, sign up for their prayer updates. It's super easy. Um, and, you know, start a conversation with them. Send them an email. Um, put on the bottom of the email, no reply needed. 
you know, that's often one of the most encouraging things for a missionary and it's one of the things that makes them want to reply. So, um, you know, but it's a good way to just say, I'm, we're thinking of you. We are, you're in our hearts. What you're doing is important to us here at Paraka and we want you to, to, to keep powering on, don't lose heart, those kind of things. So care. And care about Chile too. You know, they're going through a revolution at the moment and it's been going for three or four years now. And it means that life is very uncertain in a lot of ways. So there's lots to pray about. Thirdly, give. You know, we might be time poor in the West, but we're not generally money poor. I know that groceries are ludicrously expensive, but if we've got money in our bank accounts, we have money. Um, There's this old hymn that we sing that has this line in it, nothing in my hand I bring. Do you know the hymn? What's the hymn? Nothing in my hand I bring. Rock of Ages, well done, Pastor Scott. (laughs) Um, And what does it mean, nothing in my hand I bring? In the context of that hymn, it's it's a hymn about not trying to pretend that you are, um, you can come to God on the strength of your own righteousness, on the strength of your own, you know, the fact I haven't been a murderer, I haven't been, um, you know, an adulterer or whatever. It's saying, no, 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 you come naked before God, that you say, I need Christ to wash me clean um, or saviour or I die, is the other lyric it says. But does it mean that about our money? Um, Nothing in my hand I bring for kingdom work. Well, actually, as I was thinking about this not long ago, I, I read this verse in Exodus. It popped up like the next day after I'd been jotting some of these ideas down. Exodus 34 Oh dear, it says no one is to appear before me empty-handed. So I can't, when I sing nothing in my hand I bring, I can't be thinking about money because, oh yeah, and a few verses down it says, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. The reality is sending missionaries is expensive. I'm sure we could, you know, cut back on our missionary standard of living, but it's already pretty modest. Um, and so I guess the question is, are you putting your finances to work? And normally when you hear that expression, what do we think of? Put your money to work, put your finances to work. What, what we are told through the media is um, put your money somewhere where it's going to make you more money. And, you know, sure, that's the kind of a logic to that. But what about putting your money to work somewhere where it might actually achieve eternal outcomes, where you might, through your money, somehow be able to contribute to what that picture looks like in Revelation 7? to some of the faces that are there because of the missionaries that have been able to be sent. So put your work, put your money to work for the kingdom. Uh, have you got to the point where you're giving to the local church here in Paraka? Uh, do you give to the poor and to the needs around you in the local area? And I guess here's my question from CMS. Do you give to global mission? Is this something that you are committed to at the level of the wallet? And fourthly, um, Go. Pray, care, give, go. Now, there's not a lot of people lining up for um, global mission. So I'm taking volunteers right now. Would you put your hand up, please, if you'd like to become a missionary right now? Look, I've preached. I've asked this question in a number of churches. No one has yet put their hand up in the moment in church. But I do know that sometimes that question does. There can be a little message that's going on in the back of your mind. And you might be thinking, well, could it possibly be me? Oh, here's another question. It's not a question. It's an idea. Dob in a mate. 
Right? Is there someone sitting around you and you think, actually, that person could be really good for mission? And I'm, I'm sort of half joking. But actually, sometimes when we, well, all the time, whenever we send a missionary, we want that to be a partnership. We want the church to kind of say, you know what, I really think this person would be a good person to go. And to, together, we reckon that God is telling us to send this person. So, yeah, I'm only half joking. I wonder if it could be a prayer goal for the church over, say, the next 12 months, that God would lay it on our hearts, who might go? What might be the, the, the process? Who might be the person? Where might they go? What might their skill set be that they take with them? And if it's you, you know, at some point you're going to need to put your, you know, put your own hand up um, and have a chat with someone about it. So chat with Scott, chat with me, whatever. I'm not going to pressure anyone because I know that if God wills it, he will enable it. But he does want us to take this seriously. All right, time to finish. Where are we up to in world mission? So I have another question to answer that question, I guess. Um, is global mission God's hobby? You know, is it something that he does on the side just, you know, just for fun? Uh, maybe it's his full-time job. Or maybe it's even more than that. Maybe it's his entire agenda because God never sleeps. I believe mission is everything to God. Mission is the extension of his love and mercy, which are eternal. The extension of those things into the world, that's mission. The sending of the Son, the sending of the Spirit, that's mission. The sending of the church. That's mission. It's all part of the extension of God's eternal love and mercy and wisdom for the world because God knows what the world needs. God created it. And mission is the extension of his wisdom into the world. His righteousness, because he doesn't like to see the pain in the world. Mission is the extension of his right vision into the world. Yep, vision is his glorious vision for humanity. Mission is his glorious vision for all creation. It's pretty significant stuff. And I just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, let's get into this. Let's pray. Let's care. Let's give. Let's go. And we'll begin with prayer right now. Um, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that your kingdom would come. And we do pray that you would use us. We do pray that your spirit would um, churn and twist our spirits to, I guess, align us with you and your heart for the world. Lord God, we pray that you would greatly encourage this church, help us to work out how best to use our prayers and our time and our energy, our money our skills, our opportunities, our cultural backgrounds. Uh, Lord, please use us in the growth of your kingdom, we pray. Amen.